Good morning. So uh, Cody asked me to, to speak probably uh, earlier this year. When was it? It was in six months ago. Uh, and I, I encourage you, as you go about the process of choosing a topic, he actually gave me one, but as you, as you think about a topic that you're going to give, um, be very cautious about what you choose because it seems to have a very big impact on the person that gives it. So I encourage you to choose something like, you know, happiness or, you know, kind words, something that you've got down really well, because if you don't, it's really going to affect you often more times than it does the listener. So that has really been the case with this message for me. Uh, over the past several weeks, God has really, as, as we've come to this time to present this message, God has really orchestrated a lot of things that, is, that has really brought this message down uh, in a convicting way in my heart. And it's, it's really kind of irritating. But it's a very good thing. And uh, we are, he's really opened my eyes to some things that are really lacking in my life. And I hope that uh, what I share this morning will, will accomplish the same thing in your life. Uh, the topic we're looking at this morning is the light and easy topic of holiness. Something that shouldn't be terribly difficult to, to grasp. Um, and we're going to be looking at a specific passage that deals directly with this truth. It identifies the standard uh, to which we are called. Then we're going to look at some application. And then I want to end with a caution as we go through that. So uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. Please turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 19. And as you turn there, uh, did I ever tell you guys that my favorite passage in Scripture is the one where it says, Paul preached till midnight. <laughs> so... Uh, it's one of my favorites. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be sure to have you guys out of here by noon, for sure. Um, so let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, I'm going to go ahead and begin as we walk through this with an exposition. We're going to look at the standard, and then we'll move in to some application. We'll top right into the first verse here. The first verse of this passage explains how we can be successful in the battles of life. What I, what I think you could uh, relate it to is the conditioning that's done for a football team. It's the work that's done before you get on the field that really matters. So pay attention to what's in this first verse. All right, so here's the first verse. Therefore, uh-oh, whenever you see a therefore, what do you have to do? You've got to ask what it's there for. So, therefore always refers to something that came before. So if you look in the beginning of 1 Peter, he is constantly referencing and expounding upon the salvation that the believers he is speaking to already have. Verses 8 through 9 of chapter 1 reads, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And verses 12, 10 through 12 Talk about the prophets looking forward to Christ being revealed and the angels desiring to look into this glorious truth of Christ and him crucified. And that's what we need to view this passage in light of. We're looking back and recognizing that we have been cleansed from our sin. 
We are living in light of the glorious gospel of Christ who has paid the penalty for our offenses that we've committed against God. And not only has he paid the penalty, but he has given us the righteousness of Christ. We have been clothed with the robe of the righteousness of Christ. That is indeed amazing. So we must look at this passage as we go about this in light of that truth and that understanding. Basically what Paul is saying is you've received Christ and you have a great gift. Now what? How shall we then live? And that's what Peter is referencing here. So the next part here, prepare your minds for action. Therefore, because of Christ, prepare your minds for action. So from this short phrase, I think we can pull several important points. I'm going to walk through three. And the first one is preparation is important. Preparation is important. You know, we can go into the battles of life without preparation. uh, But that often results in defeat and failure. We really need to be ready as we go into the battle. So preparation is important. Second truth that we can pull out of this is that the battle begins in the mind. The battle, the spiritual battle begins in the mind. It says prepare your minds for action. You know, if you're going into battle, in a physical battle, you'd be preparing your weapons. You'd be preparing your body to fight because that's where the battle really is. But in the spiritual realm, the battle begins with right thinking. And it begins with taking the scripture and conforming your thinking to the truth of Scripture, and using that against Satan. So the battle begins in our mind, and that's why we're told to prepare our minds for action. And we're going to address that more specifically in, this, in the application. And then the third, third uh, point we can get from this short phrase is, one, we have preparation is important. Two, the battle begins in our mind. And three, there will be action. If he's called us to prepare our minds for action, we can be pretty confident that there will be action. Satan is alive and he is well and he is coming and seeking to steal and to kill and destroy. He's ready for action. Shouldn't we expect that Satan is coming? So we have, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And he says, keep sober in spirit. What does this keep sober in spirit mean? I think uh, a good description of it would be remaining vigilant. Don't let your guard down. Don't get distracted by the world and unimportant things that that get in the way, but be on the alert. Be aware of yourself. Evaluate yourself. Look for ways that Satan is seeking to come in and to just destroy all of the great things that God is seeking to do in your life. I think oftentimes we think of sobriety and this idea of soberness in the the context of, of a man who is drunk with wine. we would consider him not sober. And I think that's a great description here of what this is because that man that is not sober, he is controlled by the wine. The wine has taken over his his body and is controlling him. And that's what we don't want Satan to do. We want to be controlling all of the the passions that we have, the things that would distract us. You know, many of those have been given to us for good, but when they go to excess... That's when we get in trouble. When they start to master us, that's where we run into to, to danger. So we want to keep sober in spirit, consistently evaluating ourselves and asking ourselves, where is Satan seeking to attack me and how can I shore that up? All right, the final portion of this first verse is fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, I think one of Satan's tactics is to dishearten us by our failures 
to dishearten us by the fact that we haven't achieved the holiness of God. We aren't there. And Satan is using that as a means to distract us from the battle. So what is God saying here? He's saying, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at Jesus Christ. We're looking forward, recognizing that one day, by the grace of God that's going to be revealed to us in the last day, we will achieve the holiness of God. Perfection in God's presence. And we need to be looking forward to that. Recognizing now that we must place our hope on Christ. It's not in our performance that achieves holiness. It's really the power of God coming to us and we look forward to the grace that is brought to us in the last day. Remember Romans 8.1. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, Satan's trying to attack us right at that spot. He's saying, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. You're failing in this area. Recognize that and remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have the power to overcome. We have forgiveness through Christ and we look forward to the grace that has been brought to us. We will definitely fail, but remember that Christ is our hope. So verse 13 lays the foundation for what we need to do before we move on to the field. Let's move to verse 14. It says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So what we see here, we see a call to put off the old man, to to get rid of the way we used to live. What we see here is really there should be a change between the way you lived when you were a sinner, when you were a not a Christian prior to your understanding of Christ. There should definitely be a clear change between the way you lived then and the way you lived now. We need to get rid of those things. There were things that we did before we knew Christ in our ignorance that were fulfilling our lusts. You know, this idea of of conforming yourself to your lusts, it's not just this strong desire for something, but it's actually fulfilling that desire. You're conforming yourself, you're becoming what you're lusting after. So what this this verse is calling us to do is saying, look in your life and find those areas that, that were your former lusts, that weren't that aren't scriptural, that aren't aligning with scripture. Find those areas and cut them out. Get them out. As obedient children, be obedient to God and get rid of those things that used to be in your life. Cut them away. We need to ask ourselves that as we, as we evaluate uh, ourselves and keep sober in spirit. And in the next few verses, verses 15 and 16, we see the amazingly high standard to which we are called as Christians and as human beings. Verses 15 through 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Wow. These two verses call us to an extremely high standard. They call us to be holy like God is holy. You know, the one thing that really strikes you square in the face when you see God is his holiness. That's what makes him so great, what makes him so magnificent, is the fact that we serve a holy God. And we're called to be just like that. And we'll look at that a little bit more in the future. But before we get into this section, what I want, you, what I want to point out is something that I, that I found was really interesting. And we see this, this quote, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes from Leviticus. It comes from Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19. And it's really cool to see that the standard hasn't changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oftentimes we think that you know, the standard 
Yeah, it's been different. You know, it's all grace now and we're good to go. Well, he called us to holiness back then and he's calling us to holiness here in the New Testament as well. The standard hasn't changed and it's still holiness to which we are called. All right, so I think the question that we need to ask ourselves as we evaluate this passage is what is holiness? What is holiness? Well, I've got a good definition for you here, so be ready to write this down. It says, holiness is the quality of being holy. You guys got that? That doesn't help you all? All right, so we'll, we'll define what holy is, and I think um, one of the great places to go for definitions is Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary. This guy was somebody that viewed life from a biblical perspective. And he defines words with scripture. It's amazing. It's really good. So I want to share with you how he defines holy. This is what Noah says in his 1828 dictionary. Properly, whole, entire, or perfect in a moral sense. Hence, pure in heart, temper, or dispositions, free from sin and sinful affections, Applied to the supreme being, so applying this to God, holy signifies perfectly pure, immaculate, and complete in moral character. That's holiness. Moral perfection. No sin. Immaculate. Complete. Perfect. And that's the standard to which we are called. And when you think about God, when you think about holiness, it's also this idea of being set apart. God's higher than we are. He, he's set apart from the sin that we have. And one thing about God is he doesn't, he, he doesn't uh, allow sin in his presence. He's holy. Anything that's not holy needs to be out of his presence. Well, that, that puts us in a pretty bad situation, doesn't it? Because we are not holy. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Since we are called to be holy as God is holy, I think it would be a good idea to look at some scriptures that talk about God's holiness. So listen to these descriptions of our God in these few passages. Isaiah 57.15. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Describes him as high, as lifted up. He's set apart from us, and his name is holy. He is defined, he's called holy. Our God is defined by holiness. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, there is, not, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house filled with smoke. What a glorious picture of our God mighty, majestic, high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy is our, our God. What exudes from God is holiness. As I said earlier, when you see him, when you see God, you see the holiness of God and it hits you square in the chest. So ponder this for me briefly. 
ponder this with me, not for me, ponder this with me. Um, Of all the things that the seraphim could be calling out in the presence of God, they chose, holy, holy, holy is our God. Why weren't they saying, God is love, love, love. He's joy, joy, joy. They could have been saying that because God is. But I think it's significant that in the presence of God, the seraphim are calling out, holy, holy, holy is our God. Nowhere else in scripture do they repeat it three times in a row, another name for God. Our God is holy. He is high and he is lifted up. And it would do the Christian good to spend more time beholding our God and seeing the holiness of our God. Become acquainted with the holiness of God and it will surprise you how positively it affects you. We really could spend the rest of our lives gaining a better understanding of God's holiness. It would do us much, much good. So that's a standard. That's the holiness to which we are called. We are called to conform ourselves to the character of God, to become like God. So we see our calling here in this passage, but I want to talk about four other passages, just briefly mention and walk through them, uh, that also call us to this standard of holiness. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship, called to be holy. Ephesians 1.4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the last one, and I think this is a significant passage, is Hebrews 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see God, will see the Lord. So clearly, as we look at all these passages, we see that we are called to a very high standard. And without holiness, we cannot see the Lord. Now, at this point in the message, is when we are very grateful that we had a therefore at the beginning of the passage, where it looked us back to Christ and said, because of Christ, therefore, you can be holy. And we are grateful because Christ has, has given us his grace through Jesus Christ so that we can be presented before God as holy. Christ has taken away our sin. He's washed us clean. And not only has he washed us clean, he's given us the righteousness of Christ. He's clothed us with the robe of righteousness and we are credited with the righteousness of God. We have met that standard because of the sacrifice, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, and we are declared holy before our God. Praise his name. What a gift that is. That's that's justification. So where does that leave us? Is that all? Are we justified? We're right before God, and we're good to go. We don't need to do anything else, right? Unfortunately, that's, that's not the case. We have been declared holy before God, And now God is working to bring us and to conform us to that image to which we've been declared. I want to walk through kind of three stages in a simplistic definition of what the Christian life looks like. We begin with the first one, which is justification. I think you could could define this as kind of the header there as declared righteous. We're declared righteous. And this is the requirement that we be holy before God, the fact that it's been met in Christ. 
So brothers and sisters, your pursuit of holiness is worthless unless you have Christ as the foundation upon which you're pursuing it. Justification is the first step to becoming holy. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So our question this morning is, have you repented of your sins and come to a saving faith in Christ? Because if you haven't, the work you seek to do in becoming holy will be sadly in vain. Has the Spirit come into your heart? Has He done a mighty work and transformed your heart to desire to pursue holiness, to see the God that we are called to emulate? Are you relying on Him this morning? Is your faith in Him? And this is the part of meeting God's standard. It only comes through Christ. Justification, being declared righteous before the holy God because of Christ. The, the righteousness, the life that we could not live was lived by Christ. And that life has been credited to us. And I want to read something uh, from the Gospel Primer for Christians, which is a great book. I encourage you to get this if you haven't. It's by Milton Vincent. Uh, really helps us understand the... the uh, the gospel more fully and helps us love the gospel and understand what it truly means for us. But he talks about in here the fact that the gospel, or this idea of justification, this first stage, isn't just us resting in the fact that we are declared righteous, but it also this, this, this declaration of us being declared righteous has an effect on the way we live our lives. Listen to what he says here. He says, The righteousness of God, credited to me through Christ, is not merely something I rest in, but it is also the premier saving reality by which God governs me. According to Romans 6, when I obeyed the gospel call, I was both declared righteous and became a slave to righteousness. At the same time, quite literally, or sorry, at the same time, quite literally, the righteousness that God credited to me became my master on the day I was converted. And now I am daily called by God to surrender the members of my being as slaves to do whatever this righteousness dictates. So God's given us a standard. He said, you are declared righteous, and that leads in to sanctification, which is the second aspect of the Christian's life. And you can describe this as the pursuit of righteousness. So we have first the declared righteous in justification, then we have the pursuit of righteousness in sanctification. When we were in our ignorance, prior to salvation, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. There was no way which, in which we could fulfill the calling to holiness that we were required to fulfill. But now that we know Christ and have been set free from the bondage of sin, we can, through his strength, seek to be conformed to his image. As we just read about, we have that new master, the master of Christ and the righteousness to which he's called us. And we are seeking to become conformed to that righteousness with which we've been credited. And I think it's... Uh, it's not that we're going to be free from sin. We clearly know that. At least, at least I do. Um, I see it every day in my life. Um, but as it says in Romans 6.14, sin is not going to have dominion over you. It's not that it's going to be out of your life, but it's no longer going to be your master. Your new master is Christ. And you are seeking to be conformed to his image. We are still battling sin in our lives. We're still living within sinful bodies. And we are seeking to become more and more like him. It's like a garden. If you weed, you go into the garden and you, and you seek to pull out the weeds. You get all of them out, you're like, oh, yes. Next year, there they are again. 
they keep coming back, but we're constantly, the, the more consistent you are, the more continually uh, focused and intentional you are at pulling out the weeds, the more they will be removed. And then the final, final aspect is glorification, what we can describe as realized holiness. Realized holiness. So while we won't be free from sin here on earth, as you remember from uh, verse 14, I believe it was, that we looked at, uh, 13, fix your, fix your eyes completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This, this right here, glorification, is the key to the pursuit of, our righteous, of, of holiness on earth. We need to focus on the end, recognizing that we're going to be moving towards holiness in the end, and we're going to achieve perfection in the presence of God someday. Not here on earth, but we're moving towards that. And that's what we look forward to. We can fix our hope on this, that through Christ... Grace will be shown to us, and this holiness we're pursuing here on earth will ultimately be granted when Christ appears. Glorification is the ultimate outcome of the cross of Christ, and we can look ahead to that with great joy and confidence. So we see the three stages of holiness in the life of a Christian. One, justification, which is declared holy or declared righteous. We have sanctification, which is the pursuit of righteousness, seeking to become conformed to that image to which we were declared. And then thirdly and finally, we have glorification, which is realized holiness or perfection in the sight of God, or in the presence of God. We serve a merciful God that would lead us through a journey like that. And it is a great thing. So we see the standard to which we are called to pursue, this high, high standard. And we see that it's only through Christ that we can be, be declared holy and pursue holiness here on earth and ultimately be made perfect in heaven. So I'd like to spend the, the, the time we have left here on application. And there are several points of application we are going to look at. But before we get into that, um, I think it's important that we ask ourselves the question, where do we find God's standard for holiness? You know, we talk about moral perfection and we're like, yeah, that's holiness, that's great. But what does that mean? What does it mean to to have moral perfection? Where do we see this defined? And the answer is in Scripture. God has revealed his character, his will, and the life we are to, read, or to live in Scripture. If you read the rest of 1 Peter, you see him talking about how to practically live out a holy life. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Read Paul's letters. Read Exodus 20. Read Galatians 5. God's standard for holiness is declared in the pages of the Bible. Which means, if we want to live a holy life and we want to pursue holiness, we better be reading the scripture. Because the standard is defined there. So let's move into application number one. Application number one is turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. So if your heart has never been transformed by the power of the Spirit, if you are not saved, I implore you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your efforts will be sadly in vain if you do not turn to Christ in a saving faith. As it says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. True belief results in righteousness, a changed life. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So turn from your life of sin and come to Christ in true saving faith. But if you are already in the fold of God, this application indeed applies to you as well. We should be daily meditating on Christ and the work that he has done 
through the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul's preaching the gospel to believers. And he's reiterating to them the fact that God has saved you. We need to consistently be going back to the gospel, seeking to understand the gospel more effectively, allowing it to infiltrate our hearts and understand the glories of God that are demonstrated in the gospel of Christ. Remember, we are to hope, we're, we're, we to place our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us in the end. And if we're fixing our hope on that, how can we be doing that unless we aren't meditating upon the gospel, understanding the gospel more effectively? The gospel manifests the power of God. It exudes love and drives us to love him more. It's a powerful antidote to the attacks of Satan. It reminds us of our victory over sin's power through Christ. It reminds us of our new master, which is Christ in his righteousness. And the list can go on and on. It does mighty things for the Christian to meditate on the gospel of God. And I think a great place to start is with the gospel primer for Christians. This really helps us understand the glories of God and the way it, the, the gospel affects us in our everyday life. So application number one, turn to Christ. Application number two is pursue the standard of God. Pursue the standard of God and live according to Scripture. Live your life according to Scripture. You know, if we are truly justified, truly saved, First John tells us that there will most certainly be a change in how we walk out our lives. In First uh, John 1, Verses 5 through 9. I want to walk through this briefly. Verses 5 through 9. It begins with, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this means that the Christian can't be walking and living a carnal life and be a true Christian. He goes on, he says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. So we're to be walking according to God's standard. That's what we do when we have a changed life because of Christ. Well, does that mean we're going to achieve moral perfection? No. On the contrary, look at verse 8. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if we think that we can achieve moral perfection here on earth, we're wrong. And if we think that we've achieved it, we're very wrong. So what's the proper response to sin? In verse 9, he tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The proper perspective that Christians should have about sin is a humble perspective. Recognizing our own shortcomings, humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, I am a sinner, forgive me, and fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at Christ, uh, at the, in the end, when Christ appears. We need to be recognizing our sin, confessing it, and seeking to bring our lives into conformity with the, the word of God. So if you notice, in the last part of verse 15 in 1 Peter 1, it says that we are to be holy in our behavior. Holy in our behavior. So this is more than just a, a, a theological term, holiness, moral perfection, and that's kind of what we're pursuing. No, this is a practical application, a practical work that we are seeking to do. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, which I think is a rather fitting title for this message, Holiness, um, 
He describes holiness this way. He says it is something of the image of Christ which can be seen and observed by others in our private life and habits and characters and doings. So it's a practical application of God's word into our life on a daily basis. But remember this. You can do all the right things, at least look like you're doing all the right things, and not be holy. Think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees tried to do this outward conformity, but why were they doing it? They were doing it because they wanted to look good before men. They wanted to see themselves high and lifted up. And they were not holy. So when you see Jesus consistently preaching, he is constantly getting back to the heart, which is the primary aspect of holiness. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to be conformed to the image of God? Are we seeking to become like God? Uh, As I was preparing for this message, I listened to a sermon that Cody sent me by Paul Washer. Paul Washer is a passionate guy who loves to see people brought into conformity with the word of God. And he he gives an illustration that I think was very helpful for me. He said when he was young, he he wanted to become like his dad. His dad was a strong guy. He he would go out and he'd get get Paul up real early in the morning. They'd walk out and they'd go feed the cows. And his dad would get the two big buckets of feed and start walking out across the snow to feed the cows. So Paul would go, and he was a scrawny little guy, and he'd get two buckets and he'd try and step in the footsteps of his dad. Right where, the, right where his dad had done. Trying to be just like him. And people from the outside would say, what a foolish guy. There is no way he can be like his dad. But what did they know? They knew that he wanted to be like his father. And that's what people should say of us. They should see in us a desire to be like God. And to have our lives conformed to the image of God. We need to be pursuing holiness by studying the Word of God on a daily basis, understanding His character, understanding what He calls holy, understanding what He calls not holy, eliminating those things that are not holy, pursuing those things that are holy, and seeking to bring our lives into conformity with the Scriptures. That's what we're called to be. And I think it, it, it begins with a heart that desires to be like our Father and the desires to bring Him glory. So first and foremost, the question we must ask ourselves is where is our heart? Is it on pursuing our own passions, pursuing our own desires and wanting to fulfill those? Or is it truly on wanting to be like our God? And then secondly, we have to ask ourselves, if we do have that passion, we want to be like our God, are we looking in Scripture daily and taking Scripture and applying it to our lives? We need to be doing that as Christians. We need to love the Word of God. All of us are going to continually fall back and and move forward. We're all going to be at different stages in in life. But as we look at our life as a whole, are we moving into the image of God? Are we becoming like God? And is our heart, do we love God? Is He our first love? As we close out this second application, I want to mention one thing about pursuing holiness. When I say uh, living a holy life, what often comes to my mind is the idea of don't watch that movie. Don't, don't, watch, don't listen to that song. You know, we, we don't, don't wear your hat sideways because that's not holy. What, 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 what I'm trying to get across here is holiness is so much more than the don'ts in Scripture. Holiness is the love that you have for your brother. Holiness is the selflessness that you show in amongst your family. It's not getting angry. It's the positives as well as the negative commands in Scripture. It's so much more than just this outward 
avoidance of everything that appears worldly. No, how's your love doing? How's your selfishness? How are the fruit of the Spirit? Are they being applied to your life? Take Scripture and apply it to your life. It's easy to focus on the don'ts, but we must evaluate all areas of our lives according to Scripture. So we're left with this. Do you love God? Is He your first love? And if He is, are you taking God's Word and applying it to your life? Second application is pursue the standard of God and live your life according to Scripture. So how do we do that? How do we bring our lives into conformity with Scripture? Well, that leads into the third application. The third application is win the battle for your heart and your mind. I want you guys to imagine for a moment a city, an ancient city. It's a great city. And it's full of wealth and it's just beautiful. The people love it there. But as they've gone about acquiring their wealth, they haven't built up the walls. And, you know, they didn't see that as very important, I guess. Um, and as they, as they uh, were there one day, they looked out and the enemy was approaching. They were coming to conquer the city. And when you see that coming, they're right there at the hill, coming down to the valley to attack the city. What would you do? I'm thinking, I'd be like, uh, we've got to get out of here. Right? We have no walls. Well, what they decided to try and do was to begin the building of the walls right then. That doesn't work very well. And the, the, the enemy was able to come in and defeat them because they were not prepared. And oftentimes that's what we as Christians do. We think that we can go into the battle and wait for Satan to attack. And then when he attacks, we try and build up the wall right there. We have to be preparing and building the walls before the attacks of Satan come. So that we are ready to defeat him in those times of temptation. When we don't do that, we wonder why we're defeated. So how do we do that? How do we build up the walls? Well, it requires some forethought. It requires some planning. And we see a great, uh, some great guidance in Romans 12.2 and in Ephesians 4.22-24. Romans 12.2 states, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, we see something very similar. It reads that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Sounds very similar to Romans 12. Get rid of the bad, renew your mind, and put on the new. So let's, let's, let's look at these three points very, very briefly. This is a strategy for defeating anything like pride or bitterness. Or if you want to put something good on like love or joy, use these three steps. It will really help. It's a practical strategy that God gives in Scripture. Number one, seems rather obvious, but you have to put off the old self. If you want to begin doing something new, you want to make a change, you've got to stop doing what you were doing before. So if you're angry, what do you have to do? Stop being angry. If you're prideful, what do you have to do? Come on, guys. Stop being prideful. You're getting it. We've got to stop doing the, the bad and begin doing the new. So step one is put off the old self. But I think the second point really makes the first point and the third point effective. And that's renew your mind. What, this is really what we were talking about when we were talking about prepare your mind for battle early on. 
Renewing your mind. It's, it's changing your thinking into conformity with Scripture. It's, it's, it means that when, we, when, when Satan comes and he attacks us, the, the thoughts that come to mind aren't fleshly thoughts, but they're Scripture that help us battle the very temptation that he brings to us at that moment. In Psalm 119.11, the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So if you're struggling with pride, what do you need to do? Well, look through Scripture. Find verses on pride and humility. Memorize them. Meditate on them. And if you've done that effectively, when the temptation comes to be prideful, what comes to your mind is the fact that, that God loves the humble. He, he supports the humble and he puts down the prideful. When we effectively renew our mind, it makes it much easier to put off the old and to put on the new. And that brings us to the third point, which is put on the new man. Not only do we lay aside the old self, but we need to practically take steps to, to put on the new man. If you're struggling with pride, find ways to be humble. Find ways to serve. Find ways that will promote humble act, attitudes in your life. We need to cultivate the new man in an intentional way. So that's the third application. Win the battle for your heart and your mind. And you do that by building the walls through conscious preparation. And the final application, number four, very briefly, is that if we really want to achieve holiness, we need to behold the holiness of God. We need to behold the holiness of God. It worked very well for Isaiah in Isaiah 6. What did he do? He saw the holiness of God. He saw the seraphim sitting there saying, holy, holy, holy is our God. And what did it do for him? Number one, it helped him to recognize his own sinfulness before God because he fell down before God and he said, woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He saw himself for who he really was, an unholy person in the presence of God. Then what did it do? Well, when you behold the holiness of God and you see your sin, it drives you to Christ. It drives you to God as the only one that can heal you. If you remember in Isaiah 6, what happened was uh, an angel brought a coal from the altar of God, and he touched the lips of Isaiah and said, We have made you clean. Isaiah couldn't do that in himself. It had to be God. So not only do you recognize your sin, but you're driven to Christ. And then finally what it does for you is it motivates you to pursue God's standard and to, to, to work for him. Because we see in the end of Isaiah 6, God said, Whom shall we send? And Isaiah said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. It would do us well to behold the holiness of God. Because it drives us to Christ and ultimately encourages us to pursue the standard of God, which is holiness. Now as we close, I want to leave us with a caution. This is really where God is, has struck me with much conviction. And as we pursue holiness, there will be some clear aspects of life and some unclear aspects of life. Some areas that scripture definitely speaks to, but not in a very clear way could be interpreted by some people in one way and interpreted by other people another way. And take, for example, modesty. Listen, I think there are clear standards for modesty. And, like, you go too far, not modest. But God doesn't say that the skirt should be two inches below the knee. You don't see that in the of Scripture. But we need to be defining standards for our life. But we can't be judging and critical of other people when we define standards for ourselves that aren't clearly defined in Scripture. 
So while it doesn't, what it, Scripture doesn't speak specifically to the length of a skirt or other aspects of modesty, what it does speak to is that we are to dress modestly and our hearts should desire to pursue that standard. And we can't judge people's hearts. We can't be critical of their desire to pursue holiness. When we hold people to, other standard, to our standards that we've created, it's very, very dangerous. And this is uh, what God was showing me in a very clear way. He's been convicting me. I, I realize that, take movies for example. I have a standard that I, that I had for movies. And um, when other people weren't you know, abiding by that standard, I'm thinking, you know, they're not quite as holy as I am. You know, maybe one day you will achieve my standard of holiness. In all seriousness, that's the way it is. And what does that do? That's pride. That's conceit. And it divides the unity that we are called to have. Scripture does speak to movies, but it doesn't say thou shalt not watch movies. And I often hold others to standards that I've created in my own mind. And that comes across with pride. And it comes across with conceit. And it's very, very dangerous. Here's what I'm trying to say. Don't be so conceited and so critical that you miss the clear commands of Scripture. Like love your neighbor as yourself. Like selflessness. Like preach the gospel. What I'm saying is there are areas of preference and there are areas that are unclear in Scripture. We must identify standards for ourselves in those areas. But don't be dogmatic in those areas. Realize this very profound truth which, which I came across. The Holy Spirit works in other denominations too. Can you believe that? He's not only working in your heart. He's working elsewhere too. And we have to recognize that. We have to, to put away from us this idea that we're the only ones that have the biblical standard. Because we don't. The Holy Spirit's working in everybody's hearts and we're all going to be at different places at different times. When you have that temptation to look at someone and say, what's wrong? Why aren't they abiding by this standard? Humble yourself before God and look back within your heart and say, where do I need to become more fully committed to Christ? It is a dangerous thing when we hold other people to standards that we've created in our own mind. Because if we truly want to promote the kingdom of Christ, if we truly want to move the gospel forward, unity is very helpful. And when you don't have unity, because we're all prideful and we're comparing ourselves to other people and how they haven't met our standards, we destroy the unity and the ability to move the gospel forward. As you go about pursuing holiness, beware. Guard against conceit. Guard against pride and guard against a critical spirit that destroys unity in the life of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day. We are grateful for the blessing that it is to be able to pursue holiness through Christ and because of the gift that you've given us through the grace of Christ. I pray, God, that you would give us the power to live holy lives. I pray that we would pursue your standard, that we would take scripture, we would apply it into our lives, and that we would look for specific, practical ways in which we can accomplish that goal. We are grateful, God, for this time this morning. I pray that you would prepare our hearts for the message that will be given in the next service. Quiet our hearts before you, and I pray that we would go from here encouraged and strengthened to behold your holiness, to pursue your gospel, to pursue truth more effectively in our lives. We praise you, God, for this time, and we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.